Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Cedric Alexander. Uh, Cedric has a career of over 40 years in public service. He's served at every level of government as a federal security director in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, as a deputy commissioner for criminal justice in New York State, as public safety director in a major county, and as a city chief of police and deputy mayor. In addition to having been president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, he was appointed by President Obama back in 2015 to the task force on 21st century policing. He's also a frequent contributor to law enforcement coverage for CNN and MSNBC. And he's the author of The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. He's joining us today to talk with us about In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Interesting publication. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me as well. It's great to be with you guys. This... um, present this publication this latest work what was this like putting this together well it's been in the process for the last couple of years and one thing that motivated me to write this piece is based on was actually based on the beginning of 2017 uh, when we saw a great deal of criticism coming in the way of our federal law enforcement our intelligence agencies across the country and around the globe And it reminded me, having spent 40 years in public service myself, the importance of those career employees and the work that they do to keep America safe every day. And it's just not those federal law enforcement officers or intelligence officers. It's also the men and women who keep our communities safe, whether it's police or fire, or whether it's folks who are cleaning the roadways out there for us in the wintertime, or whatever the case may happen to be the clerical staff, the National Weather Service at the federal level, our air traffic controllers, the 22 million people who make up local, state, and federal employees across this country, including our military folks, I think that we have to recognize and applaud them for the great work that they do, no matter how much criticism they may re- they may receive sometimes even from our elected officials. We also tend to take them very much and take their work for granted, don't we? We do. We take the work that they do. But just think about every morning, uh, your drive in to work, your drive out when you leave, uh, the folks who are working on our roadways, our public safety personnel, people who are are monitoring our movement uh, through traffic engineering, Uh, All these are public and career employees working at some level of government in this country that we oftentimes just totally overlook and really don't think about or give very much thought to 
uh, the work that they do. We think about our military that's serving us in this country and around the globe, uh, the work that they do, the dangerous work that they do uh, oftentimes. Uh, this book is clearly, uh, for me, was motivated by the fact here again, myself, who had spent so many years in public service, have been around a lot of men and women who have worked in this profession and who have lost their lives protecting our nation, protecting our communities. Uh, it is truly a tribute to them in the work that they do on an ongoing basis. And sometimes uh, you can never pay them enough for the great work that they do. Mm. Having Elijah Cummings pen the foreword to your book, what was the significance of that for you? Well, I have to admit, it is a beautifully written foreword. And I had an opportunity to meet him back in May of last year, 2019, uh, when I was testifying before Congress. And I was just so uh, overwhelmed by his presence and his kindness and his commitment to public service. And when I had an opportunity to meet him, I shared with him the book that I was, that I was, uh, the manuscript I was getting ready to complete. And it was at that moment that I asked him if he would be willing to review the manuscript, read it, and maybe write a blurb or a foreword. And as you can see, he wrote a, uh, uh, a magnificent foreword that really speaks to the democracy of this nation and his love for this nation and the expectations that we must have for each other if we're going to continue to be a strong nation. So many people have this tendency to cite three branches of government. They point to the founders of this country. Realistically, could they have imagined the role that is played by those 22 million unelected government workers at the federal, state, and local levels that you're talking about? Well, you know, if you think about it, the founders had a great deal of vision, even in 1776. Uh, and here we are 244 years later. Uh, they remarkably had vision to be able to recognize that with the three branches of government, the judicial, executive, and legislative branch, that they had to write a constitution and create a nation where each one of those branches would oversee the other. One was equally as important as the other. It keeps us in balance, even though there appeared to be an unbalance, right, imbalance right now. Uh, it is to all, it is to keep the nation in check. Uh, when you have three separate, uh, levels of government, which for the last 244 years have worked for us very well. Uh, however, my book, I have written that there is a fourth branch. And that fourth branch, not being an official branch, as written in the Constitution, but certainly one that is important, and that is the people themselves, the American people. We are a part of government, and we are what government is about. We are who government was written for. And that fourth branch, we have a great deal of influence in our communities in our day, on our elected officials, in holding them accountable and responsible to do the things that are so important to keep our 
to keep our Constitution safe and to keep our communities safe. So the fourth branch of government, to me, are all of us, you, me, all of us, the 300 million Americans in this country who also have oversight of our elected officials. And we ourselves hold them accountable to do the job uh, in Congress and at the state level and at the local level to do the things that are important for us. Do you see them exercising a degree of autonomy? Uh, the fourth branch? Yes. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I mean, they can't, but they do have the, they do have the power of their votes and, uh, the power of influencing their communities with their elected officials. They have the power to hold them accountable, uh, and they have the power to vote them in or out of office, uh, by majority vote. So, uh, they're a very significant part of who we are as a nation. We can't forget that. We're a very important piece of this. We are. This partisanship that has been um, a paralyzing factor in politics for some time has obviously, many people would say, been heightened in recent years. Um, I believe hyper-partisanship is the way that characterized. What distinguishes partisanship, which many people would say has been around for some time, versus what we're seeing now? Well, partisanship is just part of the, our American way of, of doing business ever since the beginning. Uh, you always had a right and left side of the aisle, where they may have differed on a number of uh, ideologies or philosophies as it, rate, as it related to what was best for this country. That's normal. But what we live now, we're in a state of hyper-partisanship where there appear to be very little, uh, if you will, uh, respect for each other's ideas and being supportive of each other for the best interests of the American people. And it's become so hyper-partisan there's even research out there that even suggests that we're not just divided by gender and race. Uh, there's evidence to show that as a nation, we become very divided by our political affiliation. And that is just so unfortunate for this country because we're much better than that. We're greater than that. Uh, but there is certainly leadership out there on both sides of the aisle. Uh, that is not doing what they need to be doing so that we can move this country forward. And the unfortunate part of it is they're American people. They want their elected officials uh, to be able to come to an agreement and to resolve and find ways to to, to move this country ahead as one nation. Mm. One of the things that sometimes comes up from people in the executive and the judicial branches of government will say that civil service is highly politicized um, mm -hmm. and that most of the workers, they will say, are Democrats. Mm -hmm. Do the facts actually back that up? No, no. You have employees uh, both at the federal, state, and local level. Uh, many of them are, are, 
parts of 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 many of them are Democrats, some are Republicans. Uh, but if you were to look at the data across this country, you will find, and depending on the part of the country that you're in, uh, whether you look at the here again, local, state, or federal level, uh, those career employees are Republicans, they're Democrats, uh, they're independents. But here again, it may depend on the part of the country that you may live in. But the most important piece, uh, if you put all the data together, uh, it's a it, it's a combination of all of us. And it's all not Democrats. Uh, they're all not people who are looking to live off uh, uh, to live off of being a, a career employee. It's how they make their living, but they work very hard at it. And they are both Democrats and they're Republicans. Hmm. How do you respond to those who stop short of calling the fourth branch the deep state? I don't respond to it because it's the most, uh, first of all, it's a very irresponsible statement. There's no deep state in this country. There's no clandestine uh, uh, plan to overthrow the government. Uh, That is all in and of itself is just distraction. And the fourth branch, certainly, when I write about it, when I talk about it, has nothing to do with being a, a, a a, a deep state. It has everything to do with the American people recognizing that of the 22 million people or the 300 million people, I should say, that make up this country, uh, they are, are I what I call the fourth branch of government uh, merely because they have influence. They have influence to vote. Uh, they have influence to they have the ability to to influence their elected officials about what they feel is best for their neighborhoods, their communities. Uh, but these are everyday law-abiding uh, American citizens who only want the very best for this nation and who have an expectation that their nation leaders, their elected officials, will take the responsibility and do what's right uh, on their behalf. But this whole uh, idea about there being some deep state, there's no deep state that's out there. We're talking on our program with Cedric Alexander and talking with him about his book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Very interesting discussion that we're having. When you talk about the legitimacy of government, there are people who will doubt that you point out something that I think is very interesting. When you talk about those times where um, there have been these government shutdowns and there are people who are working in government on the federal level who go to job, go to their jobs without pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, they're performing a full day's work and then some mm-hmm. and don't think anything of it. Well, and here again, that's in uh, their attitudes about their job, their love for their nation, their ability to still be able to get up. When you had a shutdown in this country uh, not too long ago, uh, your TSA workers, your air traffic controllers, your National Weather Service uh, meteorologists at the, who worked for the federal government, your 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 uh, uh, federal law enforcement, your military, your Coast Guard. 
these individuals went to work every day, and they just did not miss one paycheck. They missed several paychecks. That park ranger who keeps our parks safe, they did their jobs up until the time that the parks reopened. But there are some parts of our infrastructure in our country we cannot shut down, even when there are politics involved. And we saw these people go to work every day. And then we even saw a nation stand up behind them and start providing them sometimes with food and services. So that even though they had not received a paycheck, they still very diligently came to work. That's those 22 million people I refer to that keep our country going every day, that make us a democracy and uphold our republic. That's who they are. And oftentimes they're overlooked. Oftentimes they're taken for granted. But you being able to get in your car or on the train or whatever your mode of transportation, during that shutdown, those people still came to work every day. They still made sure that we had everything that we need to do to keep our airways safe, our country safe, to guard our borders, and to be able to do the things that make us the powerful nation that we are. And there's a lot to be said about the American worker and those who go out there at the local, state, and federal level, and our contractors, and even those in private industry who play a role in keeping our nation and keeping things moving in this country and support our infrastructure. That's what this book is about. That's who it's for. And I encourage people to pick up a copy and share it with a friend because it's about you. It's about this nation. It's about a commitment that people who live in this country have to this nation and will do whatever they can to keep us going. Very well stated. A final question for you, and I think it's an appropriate one, you know, given recent um, impeachment inquiries and the like, with the case of whistleblowers, the protections that are in place uh, for those who speak out against corrupt government practice, are those what they should be? Absolutely. And we should have whistleblowers in this country who work at every part of government to make sure that we're keeping ourselves in balance. We're not abusing. We're not taking advantage of. We're not being wasteful. And we're not doing harm. And when people see that, they must be able to report it. They must be able to report it without a fear of being retaliated against. But it also has to be thoroughly investigated. Because we know upon occasion, people will make statements and comments that are not true. But we cannot operate without having people who feel that they can come forward and share what they have seen, what they have heard, that may put us all at risk, put our jobs at risk, put our communities at risk. And they must be protected. But whatever they report, it has to be thoroughly and fairly and without bias investigated. The book entitled In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Cedric Alexander, the um, author of the book and our guest in this portion of the program, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, over a career of 40 years in public service. He served at every level of government, 
a federal security director in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, a deputy commissioner for criminal justice in New York State, public safety director in a major county, and as a city chief of police, deputy mayor, and uh, he has quite the accomplished background. And thank you very much for joining us and sharing some of your insights on our program and thank, today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. This is going to be a very interesting discussion. It's a good one with Cedric De Leon. He is joining us. He's the director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of two previous books, The Origins of Right to Work and Party and Society, and co-author of a third entitled book, uh, third book entitled uh, Building Blocks, How Parties Organize Society. Uh, He in uh, our discussion today is going to be talking with us about the publication entitled Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. What a great title for a book. Welcome to our program. Thanks, Bob. That title, was that the original title for this book? No, that, that's such a great question. The original title of the book was Failure of the Establishment. Interesting title that was. Why did you? Why the change? I think that in my discussions with uh, with the press, they thought that it it just might feel a little bit too academic, mm. um, and that crisis would just be much more intuitive, especially uh, for folks who are uh, looking on as the present political crisis unfolds in the United States. Mm. Now, in your background, uh, before you moved into the area of focus with academics. You were an organizer and a local union president in the American labor movement. Has that helped you in being able to navigate the field of academics? It has, in the sense that um, that academia um, does not take place um, in some sort of intellectual vacuum, right, where where you just you sit there and have a great old time thinking and reading it's just it, you know academics function within um, within institutions and have to deal with uh, with the employers uh, and managers uh, within those institutions um, and so you know being part of the labor movement has given me a sense of you know how power works in organizations and uh, i think it has helped me navigate um navigate academia now there are two political crises that your book explores in the history of this country the first resulted in the civil war and the present one led to the election of our current president donald trump um the premise of that exploration or that approach, why did you take that approach? This is also a kind of biographical question because I had actually written a book about the U.S. secession crisis or a book manuscript, and I took it to my writing group just to get some feedback, and one of my friends uh, asked me, well, where is Donald Trump in all of this? And it struck me then that people would read this book about the U.S. secession crisis thinking about our contemporary politics, and it really spoke to her. And I realized at that point 
that um, that this book couldn't just be about the Civil War, and that I needed to say at least something about um, about our contemporary moment, what that crisis says about our current crisis. And, you know, in writing the book, my editor said, no, we need more. Give me more of, of, of the contemporary crisis. Really, really talk uh, about the, the different continuities. Uh, expand on those. Um, and then, it, you know, it really became a book, as you know, as, as you know, that is half about the, the Civil War and half about now. Mm. Well, you take issue with what has become the dominant explanation for the secession of the South. Why? The dominant explanation of the South is that the largest slave owners led the South out of the Union in order to protect their so-called property, to protect their slaves. And that is problematic for two reasons. The first is that that's not true. Okay, so, uh, you know, the largest slave owners were actually the the staunchest supporters of the Union. And it makes sense if you just stop to think about it, because the reason why they become so wealthy and powerful is because they have a very important business relationship with Northeastern industrialists, right? You have to sell those cash crops somewhere to folks who are going to manufacture those textiles. And their business partners were Northerners within the Union. So the Union was actually the source of their immense wealth and power, and they were not going to want to throw that overboard, you know, for some cockamamie idea of an independent Southern Confederacy. And so the largest slave owners actually opposed secessionism and the Southern rights Democrats. The other reason why I think it's uh, it's a problematic explanation for the Civil War is that it doesn't really explain the timing of the Civil War, right? If if the main cause of the Civil War is that the largest slave owners wanted to protect slavery, well, the largest slave owners want, had always wanted to protect slavery, right? Right to the beginning, right back to the beginning of the Republic, and even during the colonial period before that. So the question then becomes: if that's if that's the cause, then why didn't the Civil War happen in? 1849 or 1826 or 1799, right? Folks who advocate that dominant thesis really don't have an answer to that uh, to that question. You've made the decision to base or ground the story of the Southern Secession in the state of Alabama, specifically in Tuscaloosa County. Why that location? Well, one reason is that so many of the stories that we read about um, are, are about South Carolina, which is the first um, state that secedes. And the assumption is that basically the the rest of the South kind of mindlessly follows South Carolina in a herd. And that's that's not what happens. And I wanted to show you know what how it had to happen internally with with within a southern state uh to make uh such a catastrophic thing happen and i thought well alabama is is a is is a great example because like south carolina alabama was a vanguard in the secessionist cause and you know and we know this because the first capital of the confederacy was montgomery alabama 
So that's that's why Alabama, right? Um, the reason why I chose Tuscaloosa is that you know, you know folks don't know uh, or don't remember today that actually Tuscaloosa was the capital of Alabama for most of the antebellum period. And so if you really wanted to know kind of, you know, what the inside scoop, what the skinny was on Alabama politics, you had to go to Tuscaloosa because that's where all the action was. And um, and so I was advised to, to go into Tuscaloosa and look at all of the records in the newspapers um, uh, of the day uh, to figure out what, what the politics on the ground uh, were. Mm. And when you look at um, the period of time, um, I guess, look at an area of like around the end of 1855, the Whig Party, and that's Whig is W-H-I-G Party, had splintered. Um, what was it that really destroyed it from the inside? Well, what destroyed it from the inside was uh, the Whig establishment's decision to become a nativist, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant party. By that point, people had been debating um, the status of slavery in the unsettled Western territories, which is a combination of indigenous lands and what what was then still northern Mexico. So, you know, the country was really embroiled in, in a debate that the the Whig establishment, which represented, um, you know, these northeastern industrial interests and large slave owners, that the Whig Party really didn't want to have. They didn't want people to be talking about this. So they say, "Oh, I know what we can do. Let's um, let's capitalize on you know some of the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment on the ground, uh, and maybe we can distract the American public into thinking about that instead of thinking about slavery." Well, this is this turns out to be a disastrous um, idea in uh, you know in hindsight, because when the Whig establishment does that, Northern Whigs are upset uh, because they don't want um, the debate to shift towards nativism. They want it to stay squarely on slavery because many of those folks were at least against the expansion of slavery into the Western territories, and some of them were even abolitionists. Um, And so what they do is they found the Republican Party. Uh, And of course, as we all know now, the head of the Republican Party in the North becomes Abraham Lincoln, who is completely hated, you know, by by the South. So already you have a a big problem, right? The other thing that happens in the in the South is that Democrats start to smell something uh, funny. They say, "Huh, you know, um, the only people that we remember who." You know, whoever hated uh, Catholics and immigrants this much were Yankee abolitionists. We think you're in league with Yankee abolitionists. And so what happens in the South is that these Southern Whigs say, oh, no, don't, you know, that's not what we're up to. And just to prove to you that we're not in league with Yankee abolitionists, uh, we're going to leave our party and join you. So with this, this 
you know, this interesting nativist turn right about 1855, as you say, what happens is the founding of the Republican Party, which ends up prosecuting the Civil War, right, and the abdication of Southern Whigs uh, in the South. And, you know, the Whigs, as, as I said earlier, were and, and, and the largest slave owners were the staunchest advocates of the Union. When they decide to leave the party, there is no institutional obstacle to the secessionists in the South, and that is what leads to the Civil War. If um, Abraham Lincoln... Um, coming into office um, in 1860, um, basically at that point, did that kind of almost preordain the South's secession? I think I think preordain is a good word, um, and I and, and I and I sense where you're going. I I will I will say this: by the time. Abraham Lincoln becomes president. The party system is so incredibly fractured that there is really no obstacle um, to um, to secession. The party system is no longer actually set up to be a kind of moderate establishmentarian pro-union, that is, you know, the, the United States uh, Union. There is the, the, it's just incapable of stopping the forces of secession at, um, at that point. And of course, Abraham Lincoln's election just, you know, you know when that when that happens, the South just loses its mind, right? It's, it is, you know, so, and, 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 and when, when, when Southern statesmen, um, you know, are so offended by the election of this particular president, president, and there's no other party to stand there and say to them, listen, you know, I know you're upset with Abraham Lincoln, but, you know, the union is still our, our best hope for a free society, so they thought, you know, and, and for preserving slavery. I mean, there's just there is no there is no organization left to stand up and say that this is a bad idea, right? That that's what I would say. I I think preordain is correct, but just to put a little uh, a little bit of meat on that, that's what I would say. Mm. We're talking on our program with uh, Cedric De Leon. He is author of Crisis: When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. As I mentioned, he's the director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and we're pleased to have him uh, talking with us on our program today. Now, there's so many different areas that are uh, covered in this book, and you know, I'm trying to cover a number of different things, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm jumping around in history because um, time limits us somewhat. When we shift the focus more toward the... Uh, 20th century. There's an interesting situation that you talk about, which started really with Whigs and Democrats, and there was this unspoken agreement not to debate slavery in uh, the 19th century. Republicans and Democrats remained unspoken, uh, literally, on economic matters in the early 20th century. Then came the Great Depression, 
FDR, a challenge to that rule. How did that unfold? Well, it actually has a lot to do with uh, with New York and New York City, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. um, because uh, there were at least two major factions within the Democratic Party. The one um, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a part of was the progressive faction. Of course, there was a progressive faction in the Republican Party as well. And they did want to talk about corruption and inequality um, and um, the malfeasance of the corporate class in the United States. But they weren't the only people uh, in uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, the other faction was led um, by Al Smith, who was a former governor of uh, the state of New York and um, who was the uh, presidential nominee for the Democratic Party in 1928. And he was dead set on a kind of class warfare style um, politics. And what he wanted to do was essentially debate prohibition. Right, and it's a pro. I mean, it was, alcohol was still prohibited uh, in the United States uh, at the time, and they thought that was going to be a winning strategy. And you know, going into uh, the Democratic National Convention of 1932, whereas a spoiler alert, really not really a spoiler alert, because we know that Roosevelt won. It was really unclear at that time whether or not Roosevelt, with his message of the forgotten man, uh, during the Great depression was actually going to prevail. I mean, it's sort of shocking when you think about it in hindsight, because of course we needed Roosevelt and we needed an agenda, uh, you know, centered on uh, on the forgotten people of the, of the Great Depression, but the Democratic Party didn't necessarily think so. <laughs> and, um, and Al Smith's coalition uh, commanded a, um, a little over a third of the, um, of the delegations uh, in uh, in the party, uh, including, you know, the all important state of California, which is of course you know delegate rich, right? Um, and they and Al Smith's coalition called the two thirds rule, which meant that the nominee would have to um, achieve the support of at least two thirds of all those um, delegates uh, gathered. And honestly, Roosevelt had a hell of a time trying to get to two thirds. And and you know what ended up happening was um, was uh, Senator McAdoo from California eventually says this is this has gone far enough. I came here to nominate uh, our presidential nominee and not hang up uh, a convention. And McAdoo, um, who was uh, you know who had had problems with Al Smith in the past, um, uh, show, just uh, shows him how displeased he was with with the former governor of New York, and he throws uh, California's votes to to Roosevelt. But up until that point, it was really uh, touch and go, and it's hard to just you know to contradict the the former presidential nominee of your party from the last election cycle, and so that with that you know very tense um, uh, decision, the Democratic Party slowly moves to be, to you know towards being the organization that we know now as the New Deal Democratic Party. And though it did have similarities to the lead up to the Civil War, the Great Depression didn't you know, go the full route of crisis sequence. Why not? 
It it didn't uh, because the Democratic Party responded to militant workers and farmers and also third-party revolutionaries on the ground. I mean, this this is a very tumultuous time, right? You know, we had a we had a strike wave between 1933 and 34 that was the largest strike wave that the country had ever seen. I mean, and it and it was it was bloody. Um, people were out in the streets openly supporting uh, the communists and and socialist parties. Uh, people were starving. Uh, mass unemployment. I mean, this was this was a really difficult time politically, and both publicly and privately, the political class was wringing their hands and saying, "This sort of feels like a revolution to me." Um, and what ends up happening is that the Democratic Party responds to this popular um, insurgency from below. Uh, with a, a raft of social legislation. In 1935, they passed the National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act, also named after a New Yorker. There are lots of New Yorkers in this story. Senator Robert Wagner of New York, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's really the, the architect uh, of, that, of that bill, legalizes collective bargaining and the right to organize for the first time in American history. Um, and then there's the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which helps certain farmers um, avoid foreclosure. There's the minimum wage. There's all sorts of different things that really cools down the popular insurgency from below. So we, we had a bubbling crisis, but the Democratic Party, through the New Deal, essentially contains uh, that that crisis, and that's why um, that's why we have containment instead of a full-scale uh, revolt uh, on the you know uh, on the scale of, for example, the the, the you know the southern uh, the southern states uh, in the Civil War. So let's move to today, and you know I mentioned in introducing you the beginning of our discussion today. That's part of the focus in this book, or part of your attention in this book, is devoted to Donald Trump's election. I guess the question becomes, how did we get where we are today? Well, I think it's important just to to say here, by way of prelude, that there's so many different explanations about the rise of Donald Trump, and most of them have to do with kind of social and economic change on the ground. You know, resentment about immigrants or the rise of immigration, rising economic inequality, globalization, and and these kinds of these kinds of answers. And and the problem with those answers is that they don't explain why Donald Trump gets elected in 2016 uh, instead of before that. Because globalization and mounting economic inequality and, you know, immigration and all these kind of processes that, you know, that the country has lived through have been going on for quite some time now. And it's not clear why Donald Trump, based on that explanation, would not have been elected earlier. My explanation is... Uh, that Donald Trump is elected because 
Barack Obama's progressive agenda, the initial progressive agenda of the New New Deal, which he was swept uh, into power with uh, in 2008, that when that New New Deal is suppressed by both Clinton Democrats uh, in the White House and by Senate Republicans in partnership with the Tea Party uh, beginning in 2010, that creates the conditions for Donald Trump's rise. And when we talk about those conditions creating that, I mean, realistically, could a move like that have happened earlier in our history? Well, I think that um, most of the time um, we're not in crisis, right? It's... um, and and so the election of somebody like Donald Trump, um, a sort of a renegade, charismatic figure with no real ties to either major party, um, would not have been, first of all, nominated by one of those parties, let alone uh, be elected president. Right, because as we know, the American two-party system monopolizes, you know, you know, all elected office uh, in this country, and usually, they are able to impose um, a nominee or nominees at all levels um, uh, of government. But when the country is in crisis, and by that I mean when the American public really don't have much faith. Uh, that the that the government is going to do right by them. That's when parties are unable to to do that. That's when parties are unable to monopolize um, the system of nominations uh, for uh, for elected office. And 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 so so I would say. I would say that um, that that no Donald Trump. At least in the sort of modern party system, after after the New Deal, it would not have been possible for him to be to be nominated or elected, um, just based on the on the on the argument that you know between between the depression and the current moment, there hasn't been another political crisis on this scale. Now to the big question of the day: Where do we go from here? I think that we need a pathway out of this crisis. And I do not think that the major political parties can lead us out of it. Because, you know, one of the reasons why um, Trump is elected is that, you know, Obama's agenda was squashed by both parties, and social inequalities were allowed to grow and to fester. That's why you have the Sanders campaign, the Warren campaign, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, and, and, and all the rest of it. And so the question becomes, are the major political parties equipped to actually, or, or is there political will within the parties to actually address um, this uh, issue? And it's not clear to me that the parties are. My view is that what we need, again, as we had in the Great Depression, 
is a popular mass movement that can make the political parties respond to the people's demands for equity and justice. And, you know, when you think about it, um, every major step toward a more perfect union in this country, I dare say any other country, has happened really because the people mobilized. Um, and, you know, and this is not, so, so, so what I'm saying is not some sort of um, cockamamie uh, fantasy, um, uh, because really that's the only thing that's ever worked, right? And I think also there are signs on the ground that people are, are losing faith in our political institutions, are taking matters into their own hands, and collectively moving the party system over to them. Uh, the example that comes to mind is the Red for Ed uh, teachers uh, strike wave, which has been able to bring not just Democrats in Los Angeles and Chicago to the table, but also uh, Republican legislators in places like West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Kentucky. That's the kind of movement that I think we need right now. You know, we can't just keep waiting uh, for a politician to come in on their white horse um, and save us because, you know, they they never have. I mean, the the closest thing to like, you know, sort of the golden age of liberalism in this country is it was was um, or social democracy is Roosevelt. And even he was forced to advance the new New Deal, excuse me, to advance the original New Deal by popular insurgencies on the ground. And I think that's what we need again. I think that the people can define the public policy agenda and address social inequality um, for a generation, uh, but they need to organize in order to do so. So would labor and the labor movement be the best way to lead us out of this crisis? I think the labor movement can and should play a leading role in this uh, new mass movement for a couple of reasons. Number one, they have the resources, right? The AFL-CIO and and the, the major independent unions like the Service Employees International Union, which is also a big player in New York politics, um, you know, they have the largest membership um, of any other labor federation in the entire world, bar none. Uh, so they have the resources and they have the stature, right, to um, to get things done. If only there's the political will to actually lead such a movement. Um, and the other the other thing is that when regular working people look around to see, well, okay, if the parties aren't here for us, who is? But, you know, I think what we're seeing now is that workers are saying, you know what, I, maybe our unions might actually be. Uh, the vehicle through which we can realize uh, some of our goals and deal with with our frustrations. And what we're seeing now is a kind of spontaneous turn on the part of working people back to the labor movement. Um, You know, in 2017, the number of workers who went on strike was 70,000 people. In 2019, over 500,000 people have gone on strike. That is a massive shift. We are living through, Bob, we're living through a strike wave of our own. And so I think the labor movement is positioned to do this, not just because it has the resources and stature, but because it's one of the only major kind of 
people's organizations on the ground that that is that is fighting back um, and and has some kind of visibility and and all, and has the respect really of uh, of workers. Most interesting discussion, as I mentioned, it would be the author of Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule, latest book from Cedric de Leon. He is director of the Labor Center and associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. You know, I kind of gather you enjoy your work. I do. I really do, you know, and especially as as director of the Labor Center, you know, most of my students are actually rank-and-file union members, um, union staff, and elected leaders, right? I, I work with the salt of the earth, and they're here to get a graduate um, education in labor studies, learning things like labor law and em- employment law and organizing and collective bargaining. And it's really a privilege of a lifetime to, to lead this um this center because there are not very many organizations that really work to educate uh, working people. And, you know, in working with them, I'm sure there's a good deal of inspiration as well as, you know, realistically, they're keeping your feet to the fire on being on top of things, too. Absolutely. They're the toughest students I ever taught. <laughs> you know, because, you know, part, part of the thing that you go in with as, a, as, a, as an academic, in these, particularly in large state institutions like the University of Massachusetts, is you have a whole bunch of folks who just have never had any kind of life experience yet. Right? These are 18 to 21-year-olds, right? They're just starting their, their, their lives. And when, when, you, when you teach workers, they come into the room with a whole lot of experience, right? And there are times when I teach you know, a reading or something, and they look at me and they say, uh, okay, we, we already knew that uh, because we're grown people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Certainly the best uh, continued with your work and um, best certainly with this book, too. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Bob. And Liguori's Talking Golf follows our program at 7 this morning. It is Rick Wolf who's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Mike Francesa is along after our 9 o'clock update. We will see you next Sunday morning, bright and early at 6 o'clock, here on The Fan. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t-mobile.com.